Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be again diving into the New South Wales state election, talking about the role of the Greens in this election and how New South Wales politics is shifting further away from a consistent two-party system. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Jeff Robinson. Jeff is a senior lecturer in politics at Deakin University. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ben. And my second guest is Stuart Jackson. Stuart is a lecturer in politics at the University of Sydney. Hello, Stuart. Hi, Ben. Hi, Jeff. The Greens had a big result in the last state election, increasing their numbers in the Legislative Assembly from one to three while maintaining their five seats in the Upper House. But this was achieved without any increase in the Lower House vote, while the Upper House vote dropped from 11% to just under 10%. The party has been rocked more recently by internal conflict focused on the role of Greens Upper House MP Jeremy Buckingham. Buckingham was pre-selected for the precarious third position on the party's ticket, after which Buckingham faced an accusation of sexual assault. After a strong push to remove Buckingham from the party's upper house ticket, he resigned from the party just before Christmas to run as an independent. While the Greens' upper house campaign has been divided and a number of lower house candidates have withdrawn, they are also facing a tough fight to retain their marginal seat of Ballina and to gain the neighbouring seat of Lismore. Stuart, how well prepared do you think the Greens are for this election? Well, I think they were well prepared prior to, if you like, the ouster of uh, Jeremy Buckingham. Certainly there were candidates that were they were mobilised on the ground. Um, I know that I've been getting contact from people, um, certainly in the city, to come and work on campaigns. And I think from when I was up in Ballina um, some months ago for the, uh, the Asia-Pacific Greens, um, they were getting organised. There were people there that were engaged and people were around. Um, so they had been moderately well prepared. There has been a drop-off, though, in numbers in terms of membership. Uh, that's been ongoing for a number of years. We can talk about the splits that existed prior, um, or should I say the cleavages in the party, because there hasn't actually been a major split per se. Um, Buckingham leaving hasn't necessarily carried off, if you like, half the party. Yes, there's been a certain number that of, of people who've gone with him, but it's not uh, a really deep, divisive split that you might have seen in some of the European Green parties uh, over the years. The preparations, I think, at the moment are moderately going moderately well, um, raising money, you know, getting candidates ready, getting core flutes and, and uh, leaflets out. On the day, however, it will be interesting to see if they can still maintain enough people to hand out out-of-vote cards. Uh, and that'll be a real test of, well, do they still have that on-the-ground support? Well, I feel like there's a, there's a big question about what is the nature of the division that's been happening in the Greens, like how much this is a split between elites, between members of parliament that's a conflict amongst a small group, or if it's a sort of a deeper divide within the party's base. And there certainly has been an attempt by people linked to Jeremy Buckingham or Kate Fairman or that type to try and paint it as a divide between environmentalists and socialists and things like that. Uh, but to me, it, it seems like it's mostly been that elite divide in terms of elite divides, um, yes, there's been a, the obvious, you know, there's a division, a deeply existing division in New South Wales um, that has been replicated in part in places like um, Victoria. Um, not really, or certainly it hadn't been replicated in, say, Tasmania, and of course the other states never really had significant numbers except WA, which has always remained quite cohesive. Um, the division that's being played up uh, at the moment, yes, as you say, is very much that environment versus socialism. 
Uh, evil socialisms aren't they're not really real greens and conversely most of the socialist side saying well those greenies are really just a bunch of Tories you know with a green cloak they're just looking for a bit of greenwash and not actually fundamentally changing things um, you could argue that it's one of those classic uh, jobs versus the environment sort of splits I don't think it's actually like that I think it's driven from the elites about particular ideas about being in government and what can be achieved in government basically about how much compromise you have to do once you actually achieve any form of power and by that I mean whether you're negotiating uh, over bills or whether you're in some form of coalition agreement. So I actually think there's there's uh, a certain amount of personalities a, a appearing here as well as some stuff about well how do we actually approach being not in necessarily in government but how do we approach some form or some level of power that hadn't really emerged in the federal party. Yes, there's always been this thing about Lee Rhiannon um, being out to one side, but she was always saying, well, I'll put my arguments, and if people don't agree with me, then they don't agree with me. And that's fine, we'll move forward. You know, Whereas in the state party, it's been, well, we don't want to agree, and people take positions that are opposing, and then consensus or compromise is very hard to reach. There hasn't been the same willingness, I think, sometimes to agree to disagree or to to say, look, you know, we don't necessarily agree on things, but we have to find a way to work together and to kind of divide up power in the same way. We have a history in New South Wales of lots of times a party splitting, mostly the Labor Party, and the the parallels between what's going on now in terms of um, what this might say about the Greens, what, what, what impact it would have on a political party. Obviously, the Labor Party was much bigger when it's had those divisions, but that, that kind of question of how much a party split is a division amongst the elites as opposed to um, a deep divide in the base, where do you see the parallels? I do think those um, parallels are quite appropriate there, Ben, and I think I would be inclined to see the current divisions in the Greens as very much being elite-focused. You know, and this, to a degree, also was very much the case with um, the past history of splits in the Labor Party. I mean, there were certainly often ideological elements, but I think it also, at times, very much was a struggle between different political groups in which people, you know, seized from different discourses. Um, Anti-conscriptionism, you know, for example, during the First World War, debates about... Um, economic policy during the Great Depression. And that sort of, I think, was very significant often in terms of the kind of personal politics. You know, when you look perhaps at some of the narratives that seem to be coming out of the Greens in New South Wales, you know, they're narratives that people saying, well, uh, this isn't the party I joined. This is a party that's been taken over by extremists and so on. It, you know, the same sort of narratives you're seeing in British Labour at the moment. They're the same sort of narratives you or, um, you know, over a century ago during the, con during the conscription crisis, you know, when lots of the first generation of Labor politicians said, well, this isn't the party I joined, it's been taken over by extremists and so on. But when it actually went out there to the electorate, you know, the Labor electorate was surprisingly unified in New South Wales. You know, there might be confusion about exactly which was the official Labor Party, but usually what happened is that pretty quickly voters rallied behind one or other group claiming to be Labor, and that, you know, continue to exist as the continuing party. And I'm a bit inclined to think that in the case of the Greens, you know, there's a Green constituency out there. It's partially about ideology, but I, I think a lot of it is also about identity and culture and even where people live. And that is a kind of ballast, I think, that's 
going to hold the party together. And I'd even perhaps use an, an example might be the Victorian case, you know, where the Greens had a pretty rough campaign and where Labor pretty aggressively targeted their vote. But overall, they came out of the election in um, surprisingly good shape. It's it's interesting to think about where other large minor parties have fallen to pieces, particularly the Democrats. I mean, that was... Maybe maybe part of that was that that party didn't have the same base or that it, it had been a number of issues over a long time that had kind of demonstrated a, a lack of unity. When there, was, there was a massive turnover in people who voted Democrat from election to election. Mm. And um, it wasn't surprising, perhaps, that you know, since the Democrats really couldn't survive more than one bad election, I think if they had two bad elections, they were gone. At least there just wasn't the base out there that they could fall back on. Well, what you saw was you know, a series of controversies around... Um, individual green candidates, which were, you know, heavily promoted in the media and probably did play to some divisions of the party, and then a, you know, a series of very unfavourable preference deals in the upper house. So you actually saw a situation whereby, which was sort of fairly slight slippage in the green vote, cost them a lot of upper house seats because the Victorian system is very rough on parties that float around that kind of 10% threshold, and the Greens lost out there. But they were able to hold um, their free. Um, well, they were able to hold a total of three seats in the state parliament. You know, even if they lost one back to Labor, they were able to gain another seat from Labor. So they were able to hold on to that base there. Um, and you wonder if, you know, the New South Wales case could be a bit similar. You know, I was struck, for example, that in Paran, which is the only seat that the Greens had won off the Liberals, um, they comfortably defeated Labor. You know, it's very much a freeway marginal but they were able to pull well clear of Labor. And we'll be interesting to see if um, something like that happens in Ballina as well, perhaps in terms of the Labor-Green contest up there. That much being said, I think my understanding is that insofar as this sort of ideological division among Green elites as a basis on the ground, there's going to be more support from a Buckingham-style position in rural areas on the North Coast in particular, but... Stuart might know more about that matter. Well, I was going to ask Stuart. So the, the Greens hold one marginal seat in Ballina and there's another seat there which is effectively a marginal Nationals Green seat. What's your take on where the party stands in those those seats in particular now? Well, I think ba- I think Ballina is going to be particularly interesting, um, principally because uh, Tamara, Tamara Smith is not actually disliked by the people who are there. She's not disliked by the um, Buckingham crew. Um, so even if they put up candidates and they, you know, there's going to be votes pulled off, there's still going to be a certain amount that say, well, who am I going to put afterwards? Am I just going to vote one for whichever independent I put up uh, who are there to support you know, the Buckingham ticket in the upper house? Are they just going to let it die at that point? Or are they going to say, no, but in Ballina, um, we like what Tamara's doing. Let's vote for Tamara. She's actually a proper green. Um, that'll be different from what happens in Balmain or what happens in Newtown. And particularly in Newtown, uh, Jeremy said he's putting up candidates against uh, Jenny Leong. Uh, and if he does, you know, as an independent candidate there, will attempt to say, vote for us and then vote for Labor second. Or maybe vote for the Liberal second. I suspect it'll be Labor second because they want to maximise their vote in the electorate. Uh, so I think Jenny may have some issues, but I suspect it won't be much. Balmain, um, 
Jamie Parker is so well known that people will be voting, you know, do they like Jamie? Do they don't like Jamie? Do they like, you know, where Jamie sits with Jenny and the, you know, the Greens in the in the lower house? Uh, again, I think if they can pull further ahead than they did last time, then yes, they're fine unless Labor decides that they want to start giving preferences to the Liberal Party. Um, they should be okay. The problem may be, of course, in a collapse in parts of the Liberal Party vote, which would damage um, certainly Jamie, could make it hard because the Liberal Party is just as capable to say a vote for the Labor Party and have their voters follow that, which could help the Labor Party, unless, of course, their vote falls simply too far and they don't have enough votes to hand on. But then, of course, who's going to be the beneficiary? I mean, it's not all coming to the Greens. It's going to be an interesting one, I think, in Balmain. I think Jenny's pretty safe, as it happens in uh, Newtown. I mean, she's coming off a good, solid vote, and it's only likely, I think, to go up. Ballina will depend on how the locals up there decide to treat Tamara. I think Lismore is going to have really a set of independent campaigns. It's going to be one of those rural seats where votes are going to go all over the place. Um, it could well stay with the National Party. They're the party that holds it now, even though they're, if you like, they're the party of government. Um, it's a national area. Um, there's going to be, though, this fair bit of work happening from the Labor Party because they're looking at those seats like Page for the federal election. So there's already work happening up there. So they're going to look to try and maximise their vote um, in places like Lismore. Well, first of all, I think it's interesting that there's no candidates announced so far who are kind of pro-Jeremy Buckingham independence. Um, I think that is interesting. I think it does suggest that they're having trouble finding people or maybe having trouble finding the money to nominate candidates and things like that. So we don't. There's certainly not the sense of being a large split in the party, even if you know a few candidates have withdrawn from the the official New South Wales Greens um, slate of candidates. Um, and I, I do think uh, Jenny Leong is likely to be safe in Newtown. The thing I, I find interesting about Ballina and Lismore is I don't think you're going to have people directly blaming and people who maybe are supportive of Buckingham or his former factional allies, but I think. Um, it's more likely you're going to have people just going, I'm just going to disengage, I'm not going to really participate, I'm not going to work, I'm not going to do things like that. I don't think people's attitudes to political parties are necessarily that nuanced to say that in every case. Um, so I think that'll be that'll be interesting. Ballin is also, I mean, they're both complicated seats because the um, the National Party suffered so much last time in the context of Colson Gas. You know what, it's entirely possible that the people up there will go, you know, we quite like having the Greens as a rival to the Nats, uh, but there is also the, the possibility that the Greens might slip back because of that, and they're also facing reasonably strong challenges from the Labor Party. Ballina in 2015, there was a three-way split in the left vote with a, with a former Greens independent councillor running who polled 8%. So... Those seats are going to really be ones to watch, which we, we'll, we'll come back to the question generally of how this is an election that's got many different facets in a bit. One thing I want to add, though, and that's that um, what, what Jeff saw in or, and has been noted in Victoria, where you have the green vote not seeming to disappear down the gurgler, you know, it seems to stay around where it was before, slip slightly. Uh, they did well in Victoria to, well, hold two, lose one, win one, um, sort of swings and roundabouts. Uh, it was 
perfectly capable of doing that in the inner city. But where you're starting to see um, votes being lost and where and it's been an ongoing trend for the Victorian Greens has been in the ex-urban, the outer urban uh, and running into rural areas where that vote has been drifting away. And I suspect I actually do suspect that the Greens New South Wales will start to lose those votes, not necessarily out of the inner urban area. It's going to be, I suspect, in the uh, the, the second ring, that's where some of the votes are going to be lost because they'd already lost votes out of the outer urban areas and you know the far rural areas has always been hard. Um, Newcastle, uh, Wollongong are uh, their own places, their Labor or left strongholds. Um, Newcastle, or sort of say Central Coast, is a completely different kettle of fish again. But yes, it's that question about well, the inner urban areas will probably hold, but as you move out, that's where you're going to start seeing a drift of votes away. Uh, and certainly, when we talk about you know the North Coast, the, the the tree changes, all the people who've moved up there, they're looking for something you know, maybe, you know, alternative, maybe centrist politics. Uh, it's not not unlike when when uh, in Queensland. Um, the capacity of the Greens to increase their votes small, by a small amount, but actually dramatically increase it in the inner urban areas, um, sort of heartland, if you like, that's emerged for the Greens, but lose votes elsewhere. That's an interesting question there, Stuart. I mean, is some of that just perhaps um, Labor voters returning to the fold as the party rebuilds its credibility after the sort of fairly disastrous experience of the last term in government? Is that part of the story? Possibly. I mean, I, I actually have a, a sense that uh, the inner urban votes that are remaining there are there based on forms of ideology. People are actually saying, mm-hmm. no, I see myself, this is the cultural question about, I see myself as this form of person and I, yeah. I don't vote liberal, I vote left, you know, which will be Labour or Green. Um, for the Labour Party, um, they've got to craft particular messages. In Victoria, they've been moderately successful at doing that. Um, for a while, Anthony Albanese and um, uh, Carmel Tebbit, that's it, thank you. For a moment, completely gone from my mind. Um, were able to craft something around Marrickville, Summerhill, for those areas. Um, now that's become, you know, there's no person they can necessarily attach to. Uh, Albanese is obviously in federal politics. Um, and so you have these people saying, we are this kind of person. Um, there was an idea that this would also uh, impact seats like Coogee, where you've seen gentrification um, slowly moving south through all the various areas in the in the east and to a lesser extent moving further out to the, the um, areas around Tempe, Sydenham and moving further south along there. But that's really stayed Labour. That's not really shifted across um, to the Greens. So a seat like Heffron will remain with the Labour Party even though you've had a huge influx of, of new residents. Um, it's still likely to stay with Labour and not shift away. Um, because they don't see themselves necessarily as Greens or alternative or or that kind of notion of Green. They see themselves as perhaps left-ish or centrist, whereas the Conservative parties have become conservative. So the Liberal Party is conservative, uh, moderate, moderatised in New South Wales, but tarred with the uh, Abbott and Morrison brush, who are both, of course, Sydney-siders. Well, that's true. And I think you actually saw aspects of this in the Victorian coast as well. You know, there had been areas which had been shifting notably towards the Liberals um, in parts of inner Melbourne, such as Albert Park and so on, a lot of apartment development, um, young professionals and so on. And they were actually the areas that really 
um, swung quite hard to Labor. In a way, Labor's sort of cultural politics, I think, in Victoria actually had more success against the Liberals than against the Greens, which isn't, I think, what people were initially expecting, that it was really the Liberals that seemed to lose ground um, towards Labor um, on that kind of cultural politics agenda. At the 1988 state election, minor parties or independents made the top two in just 11 seats in New South Wales. This count was as low as four seats in 1995, but since then steadily climbed to a peak of 27 seats out of 93 in 2011. Uh, and then it fell slightly to 16 seats in 2015. There's, there's a lot of reasons to think we would be expecting an increase in this number in 2019. We've got a resurgence in rural independence and parties like the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers performing strongly in recent by-elections. A smaller proportion of key seats will be contest between Labor and Liberal as gap grows between the election in different regions. Jeff, do you think this is an ongoing trend and what are the historical parallels? I think it certainly is an ongoing trend. I mean, we, we, you know, we have seen in the past lots of fragmentation in the New South Wales party system, but it's usually stabilised again fairly quickly. You know, and I think you mentioned the 1988 election campaign, which was actually notable, I think, for a major breakthrough by independence. And, and, and the time of that election, people were saying, oh, this is a dramatic fall in the vote for Labor in particular. But Labor then recovered pretty quickly after that. But, you know, I think we are seeing this process of the kind of weakening of the party's traditional support bases, you know, to a position whereby which, you know, parties don't have this support base, perhaps that can be shattered or shaken, but which then comes together fairly quickly. Now it's almost as though parties have to be engaging in an agenda of coalition building all the time. And I think we're definitely seeing that in the um, context of this election at the moment. Yeah, I was just thinking that about coalition building, keeping in mind that the, the Labor Party had always been quite effective at coalition building. I mean, that's certainly what Graham Richardson was you know, involved in in building environment coalition or a coalition with the environment movement and bringing them in. Uh, then, of course, there's the you know, re- renowned capacity of the Labor Party to bring in a different ethnic uh, groups into the party, whether they be Turk, Greek, you know, Italian, whatever, but they would be able to bring them in, uh, if certainly the leadership in, and so then capture much of the rest of um, the the grouping. It hasn't worked so much with um, Asian groups. I suspect you know Chinese nationals not necessarily that interested in Australian politics, interested in other things. But once they're engaged, then they they will actually start voting. Um, so there's always been, as I say, that capacity for the Labor Party um, to capture or at least uh, bring within the party um, or at least bring within the circuit of uh, influence for the party. Um, the elections that have been happening with the rise of independence, I mean, I actually am less convinced that independence will have a massive rise as independence. I think what we will see is some of the conservative independents do moderately well, often competing against each other and dividing their vote up and thus diluting their message. Too many independents possibly can spoil the pot. Uh, we can see the shooters and fishers maintain themselves as the alternative to the National Party. 
Uh, One Nation is the party that might find itself squeezed in all of this. Um, Shooters and Fishers have been relatively successful. And those independents that have been able to capitalise already, like McGurr in Wagga, are the ones that are likely to hang on. If he's seen as an effective local member by the the local people, and certainly as their local member, then he is likely to continue to be their local member because they'll keep voting for him, uh, as opposed to switching back to the National Party. I've always thought the National Party's vote is the one that's most likely to fragment. For the Labour Party, it really is about, well, we might lose some people in the inner urban areas, but we can consolidate and fight out with the Liberal Party in the outer urban areas, certainly as you head out west, but also um, the south of the city. And that's where those battles will be fought out, maybe in the central coast as well. Um, So I, I don't see so much party fragmentation. We've seen a bit of fragmentation with the National Party, um, some with the Liberal and Independents, and of course the long-standing, if you like, fragmentation of Labour and the Greens. But actually it's a it's a moderately stable um, system at this point in time. I'm just, I am, will be curious as to how people like, you know, Zali Stegall do, because in one sense she would have been the classic Liberal woman candidate in a marginal seat a number of years ago. Now she is there, you know, certainly federally, which will be challenging. We'll see what happens the party system hasn't so much fragmented but i feel like maybe it's it's moving in different directions in different parts of the state is more the question that maybe within those regions there's a certain stability and a certain predictability but we're seeing kind of a couple of different fronts happening and i think that that's where it'll be interesting one of the things um to pick up on what you said jeff about the 1988 election which then led into 91 where uh we had a hung parliament and we had a handful of independents on the crossbench um, supporting the Liberals in government. Um, but since then, the, the shape of the crossbench has changed dramatically, and I think that is one of the things that's going to be really interesting about what might happen after this election is it seems like there's a good chance that we're going to have a hung parliament. You have a block of three Greens, which could probably will be two to four. Uh, you've got at least one shooter, maybe there'll be more, and you've got uh, kind of vaguely progressive independents like uh, Alex Greenwich and Greg Piper, but you also have Joe McGurr. Uh, interestingly, been reading a lot about uh, early 20th century labour history and the McGurrs come up a lot, um, but uh, sort of doesn't get mentioned very much, but interesting uh, parallel. Um, but the um, you've got Joe McGurr, possibly others to get elected. I could imagine it being quite an unstable crossbench or a situation where either major party might be the party. This this isn't necessarily going to be the kind of situation where you know that one major party has a big advantage when they go into a hung parliament. And I think I think that's going to really come into play, and I don't really know where that's going to land. Go ahead. If we compare it to 1991, I think, in a sense, the crossbench was much more united, um, apart from Tony Windsor, of course, who I think at the time everybody just took to be an automatic vote for the coalition. Um, whereas now you've got a much more ideologically diverse crossbench. Um, you've still got a fairly centrist Liberal Party, however, perhaps compared to some other states. That I mean, I don't know if the consensus is you know that that sort of puts the current New South Wales Liberal Party in a better position to try to negotiate for the support of centrist independents and. Say perhaps, for example, a case in Queensland. You know, I, where it's I certainly think they're in a better position than the federal Liberals are right now to do that kind of yeah. thing. Or even in Queensland, yeah, where the pattern has been, I think, centrist, ex-Liberal, independent in Queensland, who always cropped up supporting Labor governments in the end. Um, yeah, that the, the New South Wales Liberals perhaps have got more of a running to potentially appeal to that. 
it will be interesting to see the kind of thinking that the crossbench um, uses to justify their decisions as well. Yeah, I was just, I was just going to say yes. There's a there's a, it's interesting the moderate liberals or the the moderate independents that get elected, ex usually ex liberals, have an interesting habit of perhaps tying up the Labour Party into sort forms of negotiation and forms of deals. I suspect because they realise that the Labour Party is better at holding to some of those arrangements. So you see, I think it was Peter, was it Peter Wellington in South Australia? I was trying to remember the names um, of the different people. But he supported Labour because actually he knew that Labour would honour the, the arrangements while it needed his vote. Um, so they were quite honest and straightforward. But also because, you know, apart from a deal's a deal, it pulled politics in the state into the centre, certainly the Labour side into the centre, whereas from the Conservative side, it would still be seen as pulling the, the vote would still be going towards the right. And so there was, a, you know, as you say, Queensland, I'm thinking of the, you know, the Campbell-Newman government, I can't see many independents actually wanting to support the Newman government because it went, if you like, so far outside the, the normal range of how, I think, how Queenslanders like to view Queensland politics, um, whatever else everybody else might think, it was, uh, if you like, too far to one side. Uh, and so the indep any independents would be saying, let's pull it back to the centre where we're more comfortable as moderates. You know, we like the system. We think there's we the whole fair go, the whole Australian ethic, if you like, that, that notion, however mythical it might be, that mythical notion of what we think of Australia and Australians are, let's pull this towards that. So we don't want the extremes of either end. Um, Labour Party is actually often, because of the, the nature of the party these days, less the ideological worries, more the pragmatists. Uh, wouldn't work necessarily in the United Kingdom under Corbyn, but it works generally in, a, in Australia under Shorten, under, well, it would have worked under Foley, but it will work, definitely work under Daly, and it will pull those politics into the centre. Yes, and I would imagine as perhaps too that the... Um the high profile of the stadiums issue, for example, you know, the way perhaps in which the state government seems to have tied its fortunes so much to this project. And I would presume that the independents are ranking probably among the, the sceptics at that, particularly given, I suppose, that it, it plays to a narrative of the Liberal government as being city-centric. Even Alex Greenwich, who's the member for Sydney, has been quite critical of the plans for, for the Sydney football stadium. So I don't think it's just the country um, MPs, mm. but um, there's definitely room there for a city-country alliance against that stadium deal. So, yeah, but I think you're right, Stuart, in the sense that um, Labor finds it easier these days to enter into alliances with independents, you know, because Labor's political appeal is so much broadly centrist and often the independents represent older, less ideological traditions of conservative politics and which, you know, paradoxically perhaps establishes the more common ground of Labor these days. Yeah, I was also going to make the point that the stadium, um, at the end of the day, is a bit bread and circuses, um, I think, to quite a few people. Uh, I don't know how broad that is. I mean, we have to remember that you know, we have... Uh, um, Jones is on the board of the Sydney Cricket Trust, so you have a person who is there advocating for it, who has the year of government. You know, now he will be spruiking this to his supporters, but at the end of the day, you know, he's known for where he comes from. It is very much about, oh well, it's about sport, which is a good thing, but sport has that air of 
If, if a government is building another stadium, we seem to have stadia sprouting out all over the place of bread and circuses. It's the same as in WA. It was the Barnett government that built the new Optus Stadium there, and everybody talks about, well, you've got this new stadium. Uh, is that how we're going to be entertained with these stadiums while you get on and do whatever you do? So is this a bit of a dismissal in one sense of sections of the electorate that they can just be bought off with another stadium or another you know sporting spectacular i always remember jeff kenner and the formula one well bill we will have the formula one here in there in victoria and thought uh hang on are people just being bought off by spectacle here as opposed to actual serious politics and policy and it actually allows certainly the labor party to say what could we do with two billion dollars well we could build a new hospital or we could put you know x number of teachers into into schools reality is that they'll probably end up having to if they do stop the building of the stadium they'll probably have to put it into paying for the overruns on the various other projects that have been started that will inevitably go over budget the the tram being just one of them particularly perhaps i would imagine in the those outer suburban areas in sydney where really if you look at it the liberals have done historically well in terms of you know being able to hold quite comfortably seats that used to be regarded as being um, very secure for Labor, that issues around schools and hospitals versus stadiums, I would imagine, are probably the sort of thing that's going to play quite effectively in um, those areas, you know, particular areas with lots of young families and so on. Well, it'll be interesting in Penrith, for example, where Stuart Ayres, who's the responsible minister, has been plugging the stadiums a lot and fighting for it, not just not just in public, but in internally within the government. And, mm. you know, Parramatta Stadium is about to be opened, and while there was some controversy around that, uh, it wasn't like the uh, the other stadiums debate. Um, it was mostly a bit of a local issue around the pool getting closed without a replacement. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in those areas because I think on the one hand, yeah, there's a lot of people who are sports fans who wouldn't say no to a new facility, but I don't think it's a high priority for people and I think it's been quite an effective strategy for it. What in the end is not a massive amount of money in terms of what's being spent on trams and trains and motorways right now, but it's... um. I could imagine that if we end up in a situation where Labor manages to form a minority government, you'd be saying one of the things was the stadium, you know, amongst other things like council amalgamations in country areas and um, some things around the tram and the and the metros and different places like that. You don't don't and, forget greyhounds. <laughs> you know, if you look at the federal level, perhaps you saw Labor doing quite well in Western Sydney, you know, in those, you know, if you're in the United States, you know they call you would call a lot of these seats white working class, and Labor did quite well in that area of the federal election on its fairly much its sort of services-based platform. And it will be interesting to see if this you know stadium issue can be put into a similar narrative at this state level about services on the ground. It's interesting, perhaps, to think about Labor's position. I mean, looking from outside, it does seem that Labor has shifted that. The Foley leadership was somewhat connected with, you know, the kind of interpretation perhaps that Labor had to identify itself in some sort of um, sense as being socially conservative, you know, perhaps in the lines that Julia Gillard had been fond of talking about, but that under Daly the party seems more comfortable as, you know, identifying itself as culturally progressive, but that's just the image that I, I tend to get looking from outside, so Stuart might think differently. 
Well, I think it's quite interesting, given that uh, Daly is from the right and Foley was from the left, nominally. Uh, he was from the right or the left. Well, that may well be true. But nonetheless, you know, when you think about this... Um, Daly, uh, former councillor, you know he's had his local, he's had his voting record thrown back at him a few times of late. Uh, he was a relatively, if you like, straight down the labour, straight down the line, um, old school right labour for New South Wales. Um, he does, he fits a mould there. He was schooled under Carr and uh, not Brereton. Brereton always wanted to put the hatchet into um, the Rambic right. But he was schooled in a particular kind of politics, uh, which is, uh, he, and he has come, if you like, a bit of age being under the previous Labor government, uh, under Keneally, he was a minister, so he had some ministerial experience. He's been sitting there being a, uh, a uh, not a backbencher, but an op- uh, a shadow minister. Now he's become leader. I think we'll get a more, if you like, traditional kind of campaign from him. Foley mm-hmm. was always having to play off the left and the right. I think his own position was a little softer. And, of course, he got himself into some trouble uh, middle of last year. It only came out towards the end, but it was actually occurring in the middle and then from then on he was not making much of a public breakthrough a public statement whereas Daly has actually really been in the media he's actually been able to get some cut through I think because he's been he's been feeling confident in his own position, um, both as leader but also ideologically within the party. Um, so he is able to walk. It doesn't have to walk a line. He can move straight through, start campaigning on particular issues, feel confident and able to talk about progressive. Of course, keeping in mind that progressive doesn't necessarily mean left wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we saw that in the UK under Miliband talking about progressiveness and of course Corbynite saying well that's your right wing so well yes but we want progress we want to move forward uh, and I think Daly's been quite effective at doing that in a way that Foley wasn't It does feel like Labor's a little bit more comfortable in their skin now than they were a couple of years ago So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast Thank you to Stuart and Jeff for joining me Thanks Stuart Thanks Ben, thanks Jeff And thanks Jeff Thanks Ben and uh, Jeff, you you mentioned earlier that you've got a book coming out. I have got a book coming out. It's entitled "Being Left Wing: um, Culture, Politics, and Society Since 1989," and a lot of it actually might well touch on some of the things we talked about today. You know, in terms of the rise of a distinct left wing cultural identity in Australian places like the inner city, and how that's actually played out in the difficult tasks of government. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. This show is recorded in the studios of 2SER Radio in Sydney. Thanks to Chris Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.